good morning, everybody. Now, for those of you who are visiting this morning, welcome. And uh, you're catching us, obviously, in the middle of a series. So catch you up a little bit here at the beginning. Uh, for those of you who have missed a little bit, we'll catch you up just a, just a bit here. But uh, if you would, grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis 45. And uh, you can feel free to give me an amen when you get there so I know that you're alive and breathing. I'm not hearing anything. <laughs> what have I created? Well, this is the great story of Joseph, his father and his brothers, and the manner through which, by the brothers' sin and deception, the people of Israel, the man Israel, were brought down to Egypt. We have been traveling along this path now a good ways and have come to the place now, one of the great high points of the story this morning of when Joseph will reveal himself to his brothers for exactly who he is. And they have been bearing a load of guilt and doing a pretty masterful job of hiding it now for a couple of decades. Joseph has been putting them through a series of difficulties the purpose of which was to bring to the surface the guilt of their sin. That's no easy task, given who we all are by nature. Very difficult to sustain guilt. Ten years ago, I was in Berlin, Germany, ministering at a church in the city there, and we took a train to one of the suburbs about maybe 30, 40 miles away, called Sachsenhausen. Sachsenhausen over there is an infamous city because it is one of the places that held a Nazi death camp. We got off the train, walked through the small town, paid the money, and got into the site, which has been remarkably prepared. If you haven't been to one, I'll just briefly describe it. The walls are still up all around the camp, the barracks are still up, and you can go in them, and you can see these long rectangular buildings upon which there is rows and rows of beds, which are either double or triple-decker beds. We were led into the medical laboratories. Sachsenhausen is famous because a number of highly trained, highly educated German doctors would take Jewish men, women, and boys and perform upon them what they called experiments in order to see how far humanity could take suffering, pain, agony, and torture. And the only word that could possibly describe such a thing would be depraved. We also made it over to the crematoriums where people were put rounded into really kind of a, a room underneath where they would drop the canisters and people would be asphyxiated to death. Toward the end of the trip, I, uh, the visit, I ended up making my way into one corner. There was a guard tower still left standing. And you weren't supposed to go up in the guard tower, but the door going up was unlocked, and so I went through the door, even though it had a no trespassing sign on it. And I went up the steps, and from there, all the way at the top, you could see the full camp from there. And I went around the backside, and sure enough, I was now looking over the town of Sachsenhausen, and there, built in the last 20 years, was a subdivision of homes. And I watched as a Man drove his car into his driveway and unloaded his two children and a bunch of groceries and made his way into his house. And never once did he look over at the concentration camp, which he lived within 150 yards of. Never once did he look in my direction, but I kind of kept an eye on him to see how his response could be. For here he was, living next to a memorial of intense, massive national shame. I thought to myself, 
How could he look at me? How could he look at the camp? How could anyone bear the weight of so much guilt? I felt awful being there. My soul was just tortured being there. How could he live with that day after day, raising kids and taking care of life? There's no way. In fact, there exists no mechanism by which to absolve the German people of their national guilt. One of the things they still have to do, they don't have to do it, but they do it, is they provide goods out of Germany down to Israel for cheap. Mercedes-Benzes are cheap in Israel. But most Jews don't want to buy German-made cars, except for those who no longer hold the bitterness. And so as a result, the Palestinians are the ones who buy all the Mercedes-Benzes at a very cheap price. Everybody drives around in a Mercedes-Benz. You think it's a very wealthy area. They try to provide war reparations. They they try to express a a measure of guilt while while getting on with life. Because you can only bear so much guilt. You can only take so much. It takes relief. You see, it it is impossible for any one of us to live life bearing guilt. The Bible teaches that atonement removes guilt. Hebrews 9.14, listen to this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here you see not only a cleansed conscience, but a life set free from the consequences of guilt. Relief from guilt is our greatest need. More than food and water. We are Lawbreakers, we are all those who have broken God's holy laws. And we need relief from the guilt in within. That's why Ephesians 1.7, speaking of Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, says, in Him we have forgiveness. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to His grace. And as people created in God's image, we either suppress our guilt down or we compensate for it in some manner. If we don't get relief from the gospel and we don't feel the relief, we don't experience the relief, our guilt comes out disguised as something else. Religious zeal, for example, is a fantastic way that our souls deal with guilt before God. Zealous for God. Arguments come out with loved ones. We have arguments, ongoing arguments with loved ones. We love them, but we argue with them all the time. We have personality disorders. We lie, and then we cover lies with more lies. We blame shift. The reason why I had to do that was because of someone else and what they did or said. Guilt is such a huge and massive problem for us. It explains all sorts of behaviors that we do. And frankly, we don't even know why we do them. Because we're doing those weird and strange things in order to cover our guilt and shame. Much safer to do bizarre and strange behaviors than it is to actually have our actual guilt and our shame exposed before others and before our eyes. That to us is the greatest threat of all. And God, the merciful God, the eternal God, the kind God, comes to us in the pardoning gospel of Jesus Christ and approaches us at the level of our guilt and tells us that in Christ and his atonement we are forgiven at the level of our guilt before an all-knowing and all-seeing God. We are relieved from guilt as he makes promise after promise after promise in his holy word about how 
the Son of God came down from heaven and provided a complete atonement, and therefore through that we are forgiven. We are set free. This morning we capture Joseph unveiling himself to his brothers. And I'd like to suggest to you before we enter into it that his brothers are not socially normal. They've had a life of hiding and lying. And they've been suppressing massive guilt for decades now. It had to have wreaked havoc on their personalities. Whatever kind of strangenesses they have, all of it results in broken relationships. And so let's jump into the text. Watch how Joseph, who has kind of escaped from the cycle by virtue of the fact that he was sold into slavery in Egypt, deals with these men, his brothers. Join me in verse 1 of chapter 45, remembering that it is at this point that he is ready to finally reveal himself as his brothers stand before him. And so verse 1 says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. And he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when he made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it too, or heard it literally. Maybe they were next door neighbors, Joseph and Pharaoh. The way that they would do things in Egypt is to build their houses open so as to get maximal breeze blowing through. And perhaps his wailing, his weeping, his crying was so very loud it echoed off the walls of his own palatial estate into Pharaoh's and they literally heard it. Moses, the Holy Spirit-led writer of this precious book, tells us in verse 1 that he could not control himself. Something put him over the tipping point. What it was, was Judah, his brother, telling him how if Benjamin, his own very flesh and blood brother, were not returned to his father, father would probably die. And Joseph, hearing that and seeing the simple humility of his brother Judah, comes over the tipping point and verse 1 says he couldn't even control himself. The deep feelings that he had for his father came out. And it's so important for Joseph's plan of restoration of relationship with his brothers that he has all the Egyptians leave the room. He weeps so loudly, 20 Years of pain and sorrow are expressed through human vocal cords. He is sorrowful, he is joyful, for the time has come to make himself known. The time has come to restore the relationships. The time has come for the reason why God himself put Joseph in Egypt and allowed all the circumstances to be architected by his divine and sovereign hand, the very same hand that guides every effect and every circumstance and every situation in your life as well. This begins now the untwisting of all these family problems that he has. Genesis teaches that a father lives through his sons. You go to an older man, he doesn't want to talk about himself if he's a believer, not running for president. He wants to talk about his sons. A father lives through his sons. He'd rather tell you about his children and their exploits and their deeds and what they're doing. That's who he lives through. But it's also true that sons are hardwired to live to honor their father. It's a hardwired issue. We do that because we know intrinsically if we honor our Father, it lends itself to a secure and prosperous future. 
And Paul mentions this in the book of Ephesians. When he mentions the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments, which is honor thy father and mother, he says there that it's the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. He's only saying what's already known throughout all the cultures of mankind, through all the time of mankind, the sons who live to honor their fathers and to do it honorably expect to have a glorious future, a good future. So you have this this double effect going on in Genesis where a father lives his life through his sons and the sons live to honor their fathers. Well, what do you do when it gets all messed up? Jacob had ten very twisted sons and he had taken them, Jacob had, to the precipice of no return. He had preferred his son Joseph. He had had four wives 20 years ago, Joseph had escaped the cycle by being sold down into Egypt as a slave. And even though the geographic distance was only about 250 miles, the psychological distance between Joseph and his brothers was circumventing the globe. It was massive and huge, and he needed that time. And what Joseph does is he takes circumstances into his own hands, and he gives three waves by which he unveils himself in increasing measure to his brothers to finally accept him for who he is. And that starts the drama of this passage, and that's where we will spend most of our time this morning. So join me, please, for the first wave in verse 3. Now all the people are out of the room, and in verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I am Joseph, Ane Yosef. Two words that rung around the caverns of their minds as they couldn't comprehend this Egyptian Lord speaking to us in our own language and saying words that frankly, the likes of which we cannot comprehend. Ane Yosef. Their ears deceive them. This man is the Lord of Egypt. How can he speak Hebrew? And then this, in verse 3, Is my father still alive? Not your father, my father. You simply have to imagine the shock of these men. It makes no sense to them. They had nothing to prepare them for this moment. And so the text says they were dismayed at his presence. In Psalm 2.5, that word dismayed means to be terrified because the day of judgment has come upon you. Judgment has fallen upon you. That is the sense here. These men are dismayed. One commentator writes this. This is the complete psychological defeat due to the fear of punishment. The only thought of the brothers as these two words and then the following words about their father as they bounce off the caverns of their minds as they try to find a way to interpret them is the fear of judgment. The man who just said, I am Joseph, is about to kill us. Terrified of this man. All the years of lying and blame shifting and deceiving have come upon them, of treating their own father with intense hatred have now come upon them. No single word we can use is dismayed, psychologically disintegrated, fearful of judgment. But it means that the the unveiling isn't working. The men aren't getting it. All they are is scared to the depths of their souls that judgment has fallen upon them. So the words aren't working. The brothers are, are only dismayed, but they don't believe what Joseph is telling them. So he goes into his second wave of unveiling himself to them. 
To the words alone, I believe Joseph adds sight. Look at verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now there's no one else in the room. Why would he ask them to come closer? What does he want? Well, he wants to reveal to them, I believe, that he is just like they are. He's a Hebrew like them, and he bears the distinguishing mark of the Abrahamic covenant in his body, the mark that is given to every Hebrew newborn boy at eight days. Joseph had commanded all the Egyptians to leave. Back earlier, at the end of verse 1, it says he made himself known to his brothers. That implies more than just simply speaking, some kind of unveiling. And it was an unveiling, if I am right, that only these brothers could rightly interpret. No one else living in the world could rightly interpret. The Egyptians certainly would not have understood the mark of the covenant made with Abraham at all. And here you see it now. Joseph has created the climate for forgiveness and reconciliation with these men. And now he is bringing it to pass. He's escalating it now. And he's escalating it to a higher point. And he he does it, though, not, listen, by emotions. Although, if you can understand, the emotions are as intense and pitched as you might ever experience in life. Instead, He escalates it to the high point through, listen, truth. This is important that we get this if we are to get the passage. Notice, please, what he says in verse 4. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. You know what that means. You sold me. You sold me, therefore, into slavery. Do you know what the punishment was for selling your fellow Hebrew into slavery? Later on, Moses writes in the book of Deuteronomy, quote, If any man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel, and he deals with him violently or sells him, that then that thief shall die, so you shall purge the evil from among you. Punishment is death. This is what these men expect. This is what is righteous. This is what is proper. This is the justice legally that is due. This is the justice morally that is due. Yes, he says to them, You sold me. Look at verse 5. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He repeats it again. He's confronting them with the truth of their sin. But then look what he does in verse 5. Fix your eyes there. For God sent me before you to preserve life. What a fabulous contrast. You sold me. Into Egypt. You sold me here, but God did it to send me before you. Men, you sinned. Awful sin, worthy of death. But God was accomplishing his sovereign plan through your sin. In other words, this is goodness, this is grace. This is Joseph unveiling himself and and, and doing it by making himself known and, and showing such grace to these men and proving that in the Old Testament, as much as in the New Testament, grace is greater than sin. Grace wins out over the law. Where there is punishment justly due, God himself enters in and gives grace. And not only is the punishment done away with, 
In the gospel, he takes it upon himself. And that's what Joseph is doing here. He's bearing the burden of the weight of their sin upon himself and absorbing it in himself and extending to them grace. God meant it that you would send me and sell me as a slave in order to preserve you men alive. So this is now Joseph's interpretation of the trial. We've now come to it. The great trial that started 20 years earlier when he was sold as a 17-year-old boy and stuck into a pit by his brother screaming and crying and protesting as they stripped him of the robe his father had given him and left him in there. They were about to kill him, but they got cut off by the older brother Reuben who said, don't do it. And then they saw some passing travelers. They sold him for 20 pieces of silver, sent him on down to Egypt and said, Fini, we got rid of this kid we can't stand. And he brings it all to them, and he immediately covers it with his understanding of the trial now 20 years later. Listen, the purpose of Joseph being sold into Egypt was not made understandable to him for almost 20 years later. God put him into a trial, and God did not reveal why, what the purpose of that was, either through prophecy or through circumstances. And this is the way it works with you as well. Think back to when you were younger, and you had trials. And in the middle of a trial, the Lord would show you why he was giving you the trial. And you would be grateful to him. And it would enable you to endure the trial. And then you've had trials in your life where God hasn't really showed you why the trial until late into the trial or after the trial ended. Then he showed you and you were so grateful. This is different. This is that trial that God takes you into. He doesn't give you the answer to it. He allows you to live in it. And then one day, later in life, when the time has come, he reveals it. Nobody could understand why the trial. Nobody could understand why it was happening. God intentionally hid it. But then it became understood years later. And some of you, beloved, are in trials this morning, the likes of which God may not show you for years and years to come. Is that okay with you? Is he worthy of trust in spite of the great difficulty and sorrows? I know you say yes. I know you say yes. Even the trials that were done by men against you in order to hurt you, in order to harm you, in order to shame you, in order to humiliate you, in order to impoverish you, were ordained by the good and merciful hand of God so that he would do something majestic and wonderful in your life and in the future. Now, the non-Christian enters into a trial, and all he thinks about, or all she thinks about, is how do I get out of this? What, how do I make tomorrow better than today? And, and so the pain is severe, they're suffering, And all they want is tomorrow to be better than today. Now we as Christians have a power within us through the indwelling Holy Spirit that the bigger point is not that tomorrow might be better than today, but that I might today do righteousness under the trial. I might do what is right before my Lord, my maker, and thereby be his servant in this trial. And if he has ordained that tomorrow be worse than today, I shall serve him yet tomorrow. That's the Christian perspective on trial. We aren't like the world. We have a different perspective. And so if the Almighty ordains to not show us the reason for the trial until later in life, or even if he wishes, and it's up to him for not to show it for eternity in order that we have an even exceedingly greater weight of glory in our resurrection, fine. Just 
your will be done. Just let me serve you in the meantime. Uh, Beloved British pastor Charles Spurgeon says this. Believer, though all things are apparently against you, rest assured that God made a reservation on your behalf. In the role of your griefs, there is a saving clause. Somehow he will deliver you, and somewhere he will provide for you. Your rescue may come from a very unexpected source, but help will definitely come in your extremity, and you will magnify the name of the Lord. If men do not feed you, ravens will. And if the earth does not yield wheat, heaven will drop manna. Therefore, be of good courage and rest quietly in the Lord. God can make the sun rise in the west, if he pleases, and can make the source of distress a channel of delight. The grain in Egypt was all in the hands of the beloved Joseph. He opened or closed the granaries at will. And so the riches of providence are all in the absolute power of our Lord Jesus, who will dispense them generously to his people. Joseph was abundantly ready to help his own family, and Jesus is unceasing in his faithful care for his brethren. And we have such a wonderful and great God that we can trust in the extremity of our trial. Now I'd like you to notice the ongoing goodness that Joseph begins to lavish upon these men. Join me in verse 6. He's talking to his brothers, explaining to them, trying to get them to see that it's him. And he goes on, he says, For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Boy, isn't that a great way to end your trials and to read your trials, that it's all been for good. But the brothers still don't believe that it's Joseph. They see it's Joseph by what they saw. They hear that it's Joseph, but it's not enough. So there comes a third wave of unveiling. Thirdly, Joseph adds love. He's given them words. He's given them sight. And now he adds Love. First, love for their mutual father. Look at verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. He taps in to the love that these men ought to have for their own father as he honors his father what they have not done. And it evokes and pulls out of them that depth of conviction that this is our brother. And then he goes on and he gives love to them. Look at verse 10. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have, there I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt, and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Both times, beginning and end, he talks about hurry, bring my father down. And then he talks in the middle about how much he's going to provide for them, not just for you, but for your children. Not just for your children, but your children's children. He takes them in the totality of their lives and he expresses great love that he promises to provide for them in the future famine that is surely coming. And all this, don't miss it, comes from one who has what is described 
my translation as splendor in verse 13. Does anybody have the word glory? That's literally the word that Joseph uses here. He literally says, all my glory. Now, that's a hard one for us Christians. We don't like men talking like that. Glory in the Lord, Joseph. Glory in yourself. What's he doing here? He's simply referring to the fascinating position that he has as Lord over Egypt. And the right word, the word splendor there, it actually means something heavy, something weighty. It's a metaphor for something really, oh, remember how people used to say, whoa, man, that's heavy. It's kind of that metaphor. This is big. This is important. That's the idea. And it literally is my glory. And you've got to understand, most likely he wore a massive gold chain around his neck because he was just into bling. He was just that kind of guy. No, right? Because it was a symbol of his authority that had been given to him by Pharaoh the day that he had become second in command in all of Egypt. Oh. So he has glory. And what you have now is the contrast between these unworthy worthless men standing before him and someone who is of almost ultimate earthly value, Joseph. And you have the man of almost infinite earthly value, Joseph, displaying love and grace and kindness to unworthy, worthless men who by their sins have trampled on him who has glory and who by so doing have, for all righteous reasons, are to be banished from the presence of God Almighty and cast into the nether world for an eternity of misery and suffering, for thus their deeds deserve it. And what you're getting is the exact opposite. The one with glory, the one who has been offended, is the one giving and being gracious and kind. This is very incarnation. God's grace and mercy to us. Because in this scenario, we aren't Joseph. We aren't the father. We are the brothers. What amazing love is in the gospel. So finally, Joseph's love gets through to these men where words failed and where sight didn't take it. Finally, love breaks through, and they get the kiss of forgiveness. Look at verse 14. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. This is his brother from the same mother. Benjamin wept on his neck. He got it. Verse 15, he kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterward his brothers talked with him. This is so wonderful. They finally accept him. It's Joseph, and he doesn't even want to kill us. How awesome is this? You could actually talk to the guy. Imagine talking to Joseph in Hebrew, and he's dressed like the Egyptian grand vizier. (laughs) How their minds must have been working feverishly to try to interpret it and put it all together. So let's apply this to our own lives, to the people who have sinned against us. Well, this is only the beginning of reconciliation, the kissing here, the talking. Some people would tell you that this is everything. Once the, once the kissing and the talking starts, it's all reconciled. Everything's cool. Everything's great. We're all fine, right? No, not everything is great yet. We'll call this initial restoration. It's emotional, but it doesn't yet contain all that's necessary for there to be the reestablishment of mutual respect between each other. Kisses are simply not deep and strong enough to undo wrongs that have been done, especially in such a nature of offense as this. 
And if there is a principle here, and if we want to be wise in the manner of forgiveness, both when we go to people and ask for their forgiveness, and when by circumstances people come to us and seek our forgiveness, the principle is this. The depth of guilt in the offending party determines the number of steps required to restore mutual trust. Different sins have to be treated differently according to their nature, according to the circumstances, according to their effects. This is a steady testimony of Scripture all the way through. Yes, all sin is sin, but not all sin is equally sinful. A white lie is not a murder. And we need to understand the difference between all kinds of gradations of sin because certainly the Old Testament does And Jesus did as well. The depth of guilt in the offending party determines the number of steps required in order to bring about mutual trust. So this is initial restoration. Take your hands off the microphone. I'll just preach like this. So that's initial, oh boy. I bet there's a new something. You bet. Transfer it over? All right, very good. So that was initial restoration, the kisses, the talking. We want to move on now to extended restoration. This is where Joseph is going to give gifts to his brothers. Now, look at verse 16. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now, listen, this is Pharaoh saying this to Joseph. Now you are ordered. Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. What's going on here? Well, Pharaoh, remember, Joseph doesn't have authority outside of Egypt. He has authority over all the land of Egypt, but he doesn't have authority to take wagons and goods and soldiers outside of the land of Egypt. And so Pharaoh takes over and goes the whole nine yards and provides men with the Cadillac Escalade SUVs of the day, their wagons, so that they can carry everything back up to where Jacob is, collect everything they all own, and bring it on down. The beautiful verse 21, then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver. That made him rich, by the way. And five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the journey. What would they quarrel about? Well... I mean, they're kind of weird. I I assume they're kind of weird based on the fact that they've been suppressing guilt and being weird for all these years now. But I'm going to say this. This is what I think they would have been quarreling about. Whose fault is it? Because they've been blame shifting all these years and they're afraid that when they go to see dad, what's dad's major question going to be? Whose fault is it? This is the way they relate in the family. The most important thing in all of our family is to find out who who left the milk on the counter. Right? Oh, okay, whose fault was this? And every little tragedy that occurs in life is somebody's fault. But they're on the grand scale of things. I think that's the idea there. Because the fact is they're going to have to go to Jacob, their father, and confess their sin. Have you ever done that? you ever gone to anybody to confess your sin to them? 
I have many times, many times. I hate it. Oh, I hate it with a passion. It destroys me. Until afterward, then it feels better. Can you imagine going to your dad to confess something you did 20 years ago and the depth of which you took away his son? I think that's the idea. Let's see what happens. Verse 25, they went up from Egypt, came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he is ruler over the land of Egypt. But he was stunned. The Hebrew word is like something put on pause. Could either be a mild heart attack, slight brain It's hard to know. And look what happened. He did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Still all about him. But he's going to get to see Joseph. He's actually going to live a lot of years still. (laughs) But that's what he's thinking. Now, as you read this, did you notice what was missing? It's actually pretty striking. Nowhere does the text mention the ten sons confessing their sins to Jacob. They sold the man's son into slavery. They made a profit off of it. And then they lied about it for 20 years. 20 years celebrating holidays together with dad. 20 years of religious feasts in the name of the Lord and sharing meals together. 20 years of inviting dad to come and celebrate the birth of my son when they had knowingly denied their father of the love of a son themselves, asking him to celebrate in the birth of their own. He asked him to rejoice in the very thing they stole from him. So why doesn't Moses describe their confession? And it's this, I believe, because their massive sin against Joseph and their massive sin against Jacob is forgiven. By not mentioning it, it's as if it was a small and unimportant detail. But of course, you and I read this, and we want to know the ins and the outs of it. What was it like, you know, did they, did they get dad and they said, dad, uh, join us for a fire and they all sit around the fire and uh, they've got all these donkeys and they're all filled with goods and they've got these Cadillac SUVs out beyond the tents and uh, Jacob's like, what's going on? And what do you do? You sit the guy down around the fire and then you say, well, dad, we have something to tell you. How do you even start? But they had to have done it. And the reality is, in order for life to go on for Jacob and for these brothers, Jacob had to forgive them, and they had to be forgiven. They couldn't go on together after that day. If Jacob didn't that evening around the fire forgive his sons, even as his son Joseph had already done. In Egypt. He was led to it by his son. Mm. And so now, listen, Jacob had to have come now for the final time in his life face to face with his own conniving, lying, deceiving ways now reflected to him in ten of his sons. They were, after all, only a bitter reflection of himself. How could he not forgive them? And the proof comes at the end of the chapter because he sends his son to go take care of things. It's an astonishing lack of detail in the text. So there's immediate restoration, the kissing and the talking. Now there's this extended uh, restoration of sending all the goods up to up there to, to Canaan to bring them back down. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. You guys are set. 
throughout the entire famine, and then for the rest of life, you guys are set. And then, lastly, total restoration. Look at chapter 46. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. That's where Isaac had done it. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Does God care about the details? Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, oh, no doubt strengthened in the Lord, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. And then if you would... Skip down to verse 27, because there's a list of all that came down. And all the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. 70. This is all the great evidence of Jacob's forgiveness, everything that goes on. Now here's the thing, and we're going to close it off this way. Jacob, uh, Joseph, nor Jacob for that matter. But Joseph especially never ever asked for his pound of flesh from these men. What would a pound of flesh been? Anything from slight affliction to death. He could have had his revenge. He was in a position to enact it. He did not. But he does work in order to see his brothers humbled not just once but twice. But then when they finally are humbled, he gives them grace They never, ever have to give him anything. All they have to do is recognize who he is. He is the offended one. He is the glorious one. He is the one who gives grace. In this, he is like Jesus Christ, who works in our lives in order to humble us. And that once we are humbled before him, he lavishes us with grace. You have this immediate restoration as the brothers kiss each other and talk with each other. So Jesus Christ gives us the Holy Spirit when we come to the Lord by faith, trusting in him, calling on his name to forgive us for our sins, and knowing that we are forgiven because of the promise of God, what it says about what he did on the cross and his resurrection, and God receives us. And then there's extended restoration. Joseph gives all these gifts to his brothers, and they take them all back to Canaan, and then they bring them back down to Goshen. Christ gives you brothers and sisters in the Lord. He gives you the body of Christ to be a part of, and he gives you spiritual gifts so that you can have a role in ministering to the body of Christ. And then you have this total restoration that occurs when finally they all come down to the land of Egypt. They are all together. They are fully restored. They will live with each other for the rest of their lives. And as the Lord tells Jacob, Joseph will close your eyes. When you die, the last thing you'll see is the one who was taken away from you. So too... We, when we close our eyes for the last time, when we open them, we will be totally restored to Jesus Christ and to God. We will open our eyes and forever have the full and total restoration. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, there is wonderful love, grace comes from you. Father, the likes of which are beyond our capacity to fully express. Tender and sweet, yet legal and virtuous. Precious and tender, but hard as stone. Permanent, righteous, and good. How we rejoice in who you are, And in your gospel, we bless your holy name. Amen.